0: So, uh, in my almost 30 years of ministry, in my 23 years here at Green Hill, this will mark the second Sunday in that many years that I have preached in a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. One at a time, about preaching in a t-shirt. And uh, this t-shirt comes uh, from a place in Tennessee. James, you've had a few years of Latin. Post? Post. Post. Right? So post is? After. After? No idea. Light. After? (laughs) No idea? okay. Well, Isaac, I know, Google it. So Isaac? Uh, Light after dark. Right. After darkness, light. It's the motto, one of the models of the Reformation. It's also the name of a company owned by a guy in Tennessee who does custom Bible uh, rebinding, And this is my custom-bound New American Standard 2020 done in oxblood double-shot leather. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to feel it, you you have to feel this leather to believe it. It is, is it not double? You gotta admit, I mean, yeah. Right, Sam. Right. We have never yeah. been sandpaper. Right. Exactly. You can't. You can't buy this on Amazon. Anyway, but it's also, like I said, a motto of the, the Reformation. But it also describes how the Bible begins, because it says in Genesis chapter one, verses one through three, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, we think of the Bible. Sometimes, I think, we tend to to look at the Bible and think of it as you know, it's got 66 books written by at least 35 authors over a span of about 1,500 years of writing, right? If you take the uh, early date for the Exodus, you know, 1440 BC for the Exodus, that's Moses, and then you figure the Apostle John writes Revelation somewhere around 90 AD, so that gives you about 1500 years of writing or so. Um, And we think of it, you know, as a book of books, and it covers more time than that, obviously, because Moses writes about things that happened before his time, Um, and of course, the prophets write about things that haven't even happened yet. So who knows when those are going to happen? Maybe sooner, maybe later? I don't know, because I'm not a prophet. I just like to make one.
1: <laughs>
0: That's a good joke.
1: And of course, it has
0: various kinds of literature, right? It's got narratives, and it's got prophecy, and it's got you know wisdom-type writing, and poetry, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and unfortunately, sometimes I think we treat the scriptures and it's easy to do, as sort of like a really good self-help book. You know, we kind of take it and go, I better find this answer for my life, or I want this, or I want that, or that sort of thing. But the Bible is much more than merely a self-help book. Now, I mean, it does offer a lot of help and a lot of guidance. I mean, for sure. gives you a lot of direction. There's a lot of promises, a lot of hope. It's not meant to be just that. It is meant to convey to us the things that God wants us to know about himself and his work in the world. One of the important things we have to understand about the scriptures is that we are not the central character in the Bible. We like to think we are, but we are not. He is. And while certainly the scriptures are a collection of stories and such, together they form a single story about God and his work in the world. And so as such, because they form a a single story, it's important to understand that when you have all these different authors over all this long period of time, and they all give you a little piece of the story here and there, and that sort of thing, that the story that God has inspired about himself is to to be understood properly. We have to understand that it really has four major themes. Tie it together. Now, I decided to speak on this idea of the four major themes for a a few Sundays because I mentioned this a few weeks ago in one of my sermons. I don't even remember which one. It was a while ago. And somebody said to me after the sermon that they'd never heard that before, that there were four major themes. I thought, oh, okay. And then it came up in my mind again. I was listening to some sermons uh, by the late Tim Keller, who pastored Redeemer Church in Manhattan. Um, on this same particular theme, the the four themes of the Bible, Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's an important concept. We should probably talk about that. And I I even borrow a few of his ideas and concepts to help us all out. And so I hope in our our few weeks on this, what I think is a very important topic, uh, I pray that it will be used to help every one of us just to understand our Bibles a little more. When we come to our Bible, what what are we looking at? And how can we understand it more and understand more of God's work in the world? So what are the four themes of God's story? Everything on the pages of Scripture in some way connects us to one or more of the four themes that are the overarching themes of the Bible. Creation, the fall, or sin, redemption, or renew us sin, or God is going to do us sin, and restoration. Or as some like to call it, recreation. Now, creation has to do with how did everything get here, but it's much more than that. Creation has to do not just the kind of a how did everything get here, because that is to kind of reduce it to just a sort of a you know sort of science versus the Bible sort of thing. It's much more than that, actually. Creation actually has to do with why. Why is there anything here? Why does that origin matter? Why does it matter that there's a God who creates? Especially in light of those three other themes, creation also has to do with God revealing Himself, which is sometimes why this theme is also just called revelation. That the creation is just part of God's revealing Himself. God creates a universe that communicates about himself. What does Psalm 19 say? It talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word of God. But what does a Word do? A Word communicates. Jesus communicates to us something about God. Hebrews 1 tells us that in these latter times God has spoken to us through who? Jesus. That Jesus the pinnacle of God's revelation to us about himself. And Jesus himself says that, right? What does he say to John? If you see me, you see who? Father. The second thing the fall explains what happened to that creation that God created and then it explains its present state and why redemption becomes necessary fall happens and creation is damaged and in fact it makes it difficult for God to communicate about himself and then the fall and that subsequent redemption become further ways God is able to communicate as he creates a path through history to bring us to the pinnacle not only of his self revelation but the ultimate expression of his desire to relate to people and that's of course the person of Jesus And so we see that in redemption, then, how God has been working in history to move his creation back toward the condition it was originally in. Now, it's very important. Redemption shows us that, unlike the deistic beliefs that many of our American forefathers held, God is actually purposefully working in history, both for and through his people, to bring redemption. Remember, deism is the idea that God created everything, and he sort of just spun it up like a, making a watch, and then turned it loose, and no longer intervenes in any way. And that was the predominant view of most of our American forefathers. I, I know we like to think that they were all like, you know, super Christian, but they weren't. They were actually more deists in most of their beliefs. Uh, many of them. Not all of them many, more deists in the release, and they didn't really think of God as intervening directly on a regular basis in his creation. But redemption tells us that God has never stopped interacting with all that he created, and he's actively at work bringing his plan for the ages to completion. And the completion of that plan is the fourth theme, the restoration of all things. Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 and verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice, we began in Genesis 1 with God creating the heaven and the earth. Right? It's It's over the deep, over the waters of the sea. Now at the end, we see this new heaven, this new earth, no sea. We'll explain why at some point. It's all made new, made like it was meant to be until sin corrupted it in the fall. And so we'll start today back in those first words of the Old Testament in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3 where we see God bringing forth light from the darkness. Because the first three verses of Genesis tell us what it's like even before the beginning. Let you read it again? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. So well, here we have three verses that kind of not only give us what the beginning was, but kind of clue us in even before that beginning. And we're going to see between this sermon and next week that before the beginning, there are three things present. God, darkness, and love. We start with God himself was the ground of all being. It says, in the beginning, we are told, God created everything. This is the beginning. God created started there. Creates heavens and the earth. We know from subsequent verses he's going to create everything else. But he precedes everything. There we philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre. Do you know who Jean-Paul Sartre was? It's okay if you did. French philosopher, lived during World War II and post-World War II. He is the biggest proponent and expounder of something you probably have heard of, existentialism, the philosophy of being. And in 1946, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a book called Being and Nothingness. And in this, being, in this book, he tried to explain the idea that life has no intrinsic meaning by talking about a knife. Mm-hmm. Now, this is my knife that I carry. It's a Kershaw, it's a carbon fiber handle, titanium coated blade. Very very handy if you need to open a box. Or like you go to the restaurant, okay? And they give you one of those steak knives that's all serrated. I hate those things. Sam, am I right? Serrated steak knives are just wrong. Okay? Thus we have Mr. Kershaw. <laughs> My wife, but I just pick it up my steak and stick it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Did you wash it before you used it? Occasionally. I mean, just lick it off. <laughs> <laughs> now in Sartre's illustration, he talks about the knife. He's actually talking about a letter opener in his illustration. It has meaning and purpose because it was clearly created for something. We know you have a knife, what's the purpose of the knife? It's to cut something, right? When you have a knife, somebody created it for the purpose of cutting things. You cut open a box, or if you shoot a deer and you gotta gut the deer, or whatever it happens to be, okay? You need a knife for all these things. That's his purpose. Someone sometimes said, hey, I really need to cut something, so I'm going to invent a way to cut it. And they made a knife. And then of course over time we refined the knife. And it was created for that purpose. And he argues then for that idea that you can look at a knife and you see its purpose because someone designed it that way. But because, because remember, he's starting with the assumption there is no God. And that's important. Because there is nothing that designed or created the universe or people, the universe has no purpose and we have no purpose. Because according to Sartre, since there's no creator, there was no one to create us have a purpose. It does have any meaning. There's no purpose or meaning to the universe because there's no one to create it. So then the Bible comes in and we look at that and we go, but well, what if there is a creator then? Using Sartre's own argument if there is a creator, which there is because in the beginning of God life has meaning and purpose. Now, it may not always be directly apparent what that meaning and purpose is. It's not like a knife, right? I a knife, you know a knife for. It. That's easy. If there's a creator, then there must be a reason things exist and a reason we exist. Genesis 1 1 tells us there is a creator. extremely limited knowledge of modern philosophy. And believe me, it's extremely limited. This has practical, everyday applications to every one of our lives. Because if life has no meaning or purpose, like according to Sartre, who cares what happens to us? It's like that speech sort of in Dead poet Society, where Robin Williams is talking to his class, and what does he say to them? He says, you have to seize the day, because that's the only way to have a purpose, because one of these days you're gonna die and just be food for worms. That's existentialism. You're gonna be food for worms, you're gonna die, you gotta make some sort of made up purpose, because life has no meaning otherwise. You gotta figure, you gotta do it yourself. I mean, if it starts right, There's no meaning or purpose. Who's to say murder's wrong? Your life is meaningless. Who cares if I kill you? Or if you kill me? Who cares what you do or don't do? It's all meaningless anyway. And it is this sort of existentialist and nihilistic philosophy that is at the root of genocides and abortion and all sorts of societal ills. When you take Existentialism and nihilism, and which is sort of the, the back end of existentialism, that <laughs> it's all moving And you have a little Marxism, right? All of which flows out of Darwinism, okay? Because if it all just evolved out of nothing, then if you just, if, if, if you look at Darwinism and it all just evolved out of nothing, All the other stuff, nihilism, existentialism, and Marxism is the natural outgrowth of that. You remove the creator, and purpose and meaning fly out the window, and it's every person for themselves. But when we see that God has created everything, then all of a sudden everything in the universe has a purpose and a meaning. Our lives have meaning, both to God and to one another. Every person, every life is valuable. No matter how young or how old, born or unborn, sick or not sick, poor rich or in between. Every tree and insect that exists, exists for a reason. Even mosquitoes. I said, sometimes you can't tell what the of your purpose is, but it exists for a reason, for some reason. Even those yellow jackets that keep building nests in my window. <laughs> <laughs> I finally gave up, I just let them build a nest. They can't come in anyway. They just they, I just said so go, you guys go. It's kind of fun to watch sometimes. Those things did not just evolve out of nothingness with no purpose or reason. Instead, a creator made them for his purposes. Just as someone, someone made the knife to cut, God designed everything for a purpose. And the biggest reason, according to Keller, that this is so significant has to do with living according to that purpose. Everything in the universe finds its greatest fulfillment and freedom in living according to its design and purpose. Now Keller uses the example of a hawk. Now we're not talking the hawks that are seventy miles south of us, because I've looked at the preseason rankings and I'm not so sure that they're <laughs> they're purpose and creation. I mean I hope so, and hope does spring eternal. We can be hopeful. That's okay, there's so many teams in the Big Ten anymore. It's almost, you know, pretty soon there's not going to be any college football anymore, it's just going to be the Big Ten. Every team will be part of the Big Ten. Anyway. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Think about a hawk. Here's a picture of a, a red tailed hawk. A hawk is designed to fly and to soar and to hunt from the air. And when it does, it's free and it's living according to its design, right? It only lives its best life, according to its design, when it's plying the thermals in the air currents and then swooping down on some unsuspecting rabbit somewhere. What it does, it brings wonder and joy to anybody who sees it. If you've seen that hawk swoop down and grab some kind of rodent for dinner, that's a wonder to behold. Way better than the Iowa (laughs) offense. If you a hawk and you put it in a cage, or it breaks a wing and it just hobbles around on the ground all day, what do we do? We pity it. Because it's not living according to its design or its purpose. Hawks are not designed to live in cages. They were made to fly and hunt and glorify their creator by doing so. Humans, likewise, flourish. When we live according to our design and purpose. Now, in a grand sense, like the old Westminster Catechism, question number one. Anybody know what Westminster, Westminster Catechism question number one is? What is man's chief end? Right, what is man's chief end, right? When the answer to question one is? To glorify God and enjoy it forever. What's ah, so? yes! engineer do you think? what existentialism and darwinism does. I mean, maybe you have some fun along the way by partying or getting drunk or whatever it is. But anything that interferes then with finding pleasure, because if there's really no meaning to life, no higher purpose, no design, then I just got to find pleasure in whatever is in the moment. And anything that interferes with finding that pleasure needs to be done away with, right? Like an unexpected baby. Life is meaningless, so maybe we just numb ourselves to the pain. Because that's all you got left pretty much at that point. But God, as the ground of being, gives us meaning and purpose because we are designed by Him for meaning and purpose. When we're living according to that meaning and purpose, we experience joy and pleasure and hope. Like the hawk soaring on the thermals we experience the good life that God designed us for. Well, the second thing I pointed out at the present, or at the beginning, was present at the beginning, is darkness. And out of darkness there would be light. Let's go back to Genesis real quick. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And when we read these lines, I think we read over, I mean, probably most of you, some of you have been in church longer than I've been a while. And so you've read them a million times, and you've heard them a million times, and you think about them, and you don't really think about what it was. What does it really mean that the earth was formless and void and there was darkness? What did that have meant to the ancient Hebrews? When this was written, when Moses wrote this down, what would that have meant? Because it's not so much a commentary on the physical state of matter that God created. I mean, that's there, too. That's, that's not the primary point here. It's a commentary on the entire state of the universe before God fashions it with design and purpose and meaning. Formless and void are meant to convey the idea of chaos and confusion and meaninglessness. Darkness over the deep, which that word deep there is the same word, same Hebrew word as the word for sea. Darkness over the sea the idea of something to be feared because of its disorder. The ancient Hebrews, you must remember, were not a seafaring people. They feared the sea and open water. And you put together, you put all this together here, the idea is that before God takes the formless creation, the void creation, the, the initial chaos, before he takes it and applies his design and his purpose, that it's a messy and disordered, confusing fearful place. But God comes to that and he speaks and you notice, what is the first thing he calls into being? The looks. The light. What does the light do? It dispels darkness. It begins the process of bringing order to the creation. God speaks into the initial primordial chaos that He's brought about and He begins to bring order. Genesis 1 4 and 5 says, And God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. And He called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so this is the first act. Too. It is the idea that God is dispelling the disorder and the confusion and the meaninglessness that exists apart from Him. And He brings everything about according to His design. If you go through the scriptures, almost always, about 90% of the time, darkness is associated with bad things. Psalm 82, verses 4 through 5. The psalmist writes, Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now what do we know about the wicked? They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Right? The wicked walk about in darkness because they rejected the Creator. That's why they're in darkness. Darkness is that which is ignored and gone away from God. What's the second to the last plague when Moses is sent to deliver the Hebrews from Israel. Darkness over the land, right? What happens from the sixth to the ninth hour when Jesus is hung on the cross? Darkness. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. What is the fifth bowl of God's wrath over all the earth in Revelation 16, 10? darkness. In almost every case in Scripture, darkness is just not about being able to not see. It is representative of everything that's not God. It's representative of evil and fear and judgment. It is not something to be desired. It is disorder and it is chaos. It's confusion. It's Something bad is about to happen. And sometimes it's even God's wrath itself. So what does God do to that? In the darkness, he brings light. Light's not just a way to see. The light is order. He brings meaning and form and purpose to the creation. And everything God does from that point on in Genesis chapter 1, does what? Brings light more order. Everything he does brings more meaning order and purpose to his creation. He creates a universe that has increasing order, not chaos and confusion. Why is science even possible? Have you ever thought about this? Because God created order in the universe that his creatures can discover. Everything he does has order. He creates order now for days and times and seasons, right? He creates order for the family. He creates, this is all all in the first chapter of Genesis. He, He creates order for his creatures to reproduce, right? Everything reproduces according to its kind. And so it can thrive and be able to fill the earth with life. Order does not happen by mistake. Order requires... Someone to add energy and thought and purpose to the disorder. <coughs> even, si- even science tells us this, right? I can give you any number of trees. Okay, I- I'd give Alberto a chainsaw. I can tell him, all I want you to do is, is, if you would just go and cut all the trees on the property down, which he'd have fun doing because I've seen Alberto a Man, after my own heart. I said, if you could just leave them in a pile. Out back, I am sure that they will suddenly become lumber and assemble themselves into a house. Yeah, that's absolutely. You're laughing because that's absolutely not what's going to happen, right? What are they going to do? They're going to sit there. and They're going to rot. And you give them a few years of the wood just sitting out there, cut down. All it's going to do is first it's going to dry out, and eventually it's going to rot. Okay, because any number of trees without the of someone with some knowledge and some energy and some tools is not going to self-assemble itself into a house. In fact, I can give you all the building blocks of life, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, give them all to you, right? And they will not self-assemble all of a sudden into living cells. It's not going to happen. carbon dioxide level in this room is going up. I'm contributing to global warming right now. If you think the global warming is caused by my breathing. Some outside force and intelligence must act on them to make life, right? The second law of thermodynamics guarantees this because it tells us that everything is moving to its highest state of entropy scientific way of saying it's all falling apart, which is what the Bible says too. It's all falling apart. Creation matters because from it flow the meaning and the purpose and the design and the order that make life and our lives possible and worth living. Everything and everyone is created by God. freedom when it functions according to the way God himself designed it to be. Okay. Now when we began, you may recall that at the very beginning of the sermon, I told you there were three things, right? God himself, darkness, what was the third one? Love. Love. Where's the love I mentioned? Well, that's the subject for next week, because our entire understanding of the idea of one God as three persons is based on the creative work of God and love. And it's the basis in that relationship that we're created as God's companions, but that also sets the stage then for the second great theme, to the fall, because that threatens the relationship and the love that we were created out of and starts to bring darkness back into creation. So post-Tenenborough Lux, not just the model of the Reformation, although it, it was, it's not just a company that makes really sweet custom rebound models, although Jeff does. So i plug for you, bro. <laughs> it is the truth of creation, where God moves his universe from disorder to order, from darkness to light, where design and purpose and meaning are infused into the very molecules of the universe themselves. And so I want to leave you with some words from Romans 13, words of Paul about darkness. Paul writes, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone the day is at hand. Why? Because Jesus is coming. So then let us cast off the works of what? Darkness! And put on the armor of what? Light! And walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So for us, we can find our greatest joy, fulfillment, in finding the ways that we can live according to that design, that purpose. Helps to do so, especially because of Jesus. know that we can do so because He is the ultimate light having come into the world to dispel the darkness of sin.